0: That uh, brief drink of water I just took reminds me of a man who was crawling through the Sahara Desert, was just dying of thirst, looking for a drink so badly. He finally encounters a man coming through on a camel, and he says, "I just need a drink of water. Do you have anything you can share with me?" And the guy says, "It's not really what I have or what I what I do. I'm I'm a traveling salesman. I can sell you a necktie for four bucks." The guy's like, that's not quite what I need. Now I'm, I'm dying here. You got to give me something. You must have something for your journey. He says, no, look, I can tell you're in a bad spot. Listen, I'll even cut you a deal. Two for seven dollars. The guy's thinking to himself, you're not, you're not hitting my knee. This is not what I need in the moment. And so sure enough, the guy says, I'm sorry, it's all I have. And he moves on. So the man who's dying of thirst just continues to press on through the desert. And he finally sees this, uh, a, um, a, an oasis off in the distance with a, a lovely, uh, posh restaurant. And he thinks, surely they're going to take care of me. And he, Crawls his way up and the maitre d's there to greet him at the outside and he says, I just need a drink of water and the guy says, I'm sorry, sir, for entrance, you're going to need a necktie. I mean, that the this is what we go through, right? It's like we have an incredible thirst. We have a real need And what everyone around us is talking about or what people are offering us misses the mark. Sometimes it feels like it comes close and sometimes it's way out of left field. And you go, is anybody hearing what I'm getting at here? Is anybody recognizing what I'm really lacking? We are dying of thirst and people around us are wanting to talk about neckties all the time. Uh the children of Israel, God's chosen people when they were in captivity in Egypt in slavery, God says I'm going to lead you out and I'm going to do so under the uh the uh, the faithful and bold leadership of a man named Moses. And and Moses comes to Pharaoh, you most of you will know the story and says you have to what? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God says, plague after plague after plague will we'll come and test him and, and break the will of Pharaoh. Eventually, Moses is able to lead the children of Israel through or out of Egypt and then through the desert. And because of kind of constant um, whining and uh, faithlessness and all these things, the Lord allows them to wander around almost aimlessly for 40 years. Not arriving in their promised land, the the place that the Lord said he has prepared for them and that is awaiting them. And it took them so long for them just to be able to find it. And during that journey, the Lord shows up in many miraculous ways. He's proving his faithfulness to his people. He says, yes, you're going to wander. Yes, you're going to suffer, but I will never let you forget that I'm here to take care of you. If it's direction you need, I'm going to put a light in the sky, a pillar of fire that you'll be able to follow. And that will lead you on your journey. When you're hungry, you're going to cry out to me and I'm going to wake you up in the morning with these flakes of bread all over the the ground that you'll be able to gather up and to make in all sorts of ways. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Where I'm going to send you quail, you're going to have that protein and that meat source that you so desperately want and, and crave. Now you're going to get sick of it. Because my provision's coming in so full and so furiously that you're just gonna get sick of it because that's who you are. You tire of my provision. And if you're thirsty, I'm gonna send Moses over to the rock and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have him strike that rock and it's gonna come out like a brook of that rock. You'll be able to drink water, uh, from, from basically the hand of God for your supply. Well, over time, a, 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 a feast or a festival of God's people after they had been rescued from slavery, after they'd been led through the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings as, as, they, as they arrive in their uh, promised land, then they established this tradition year after year after year where they would come and celebrate all that God did historically for, for his people. And it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and what they would have is, is, uh, they would have these little shanty kind of shacks built all around the area of Jerusalem and people would make the, the journey to the city and they would have this incredibly celebrating, uh, of festive and, and momentous time with their, with their family and they'd come and they'd remember the way that God was faithful to his people. Their, their structures would have openings in the roof so the kids could look at the stars at night as dad explained what God Did to lead them by uh, by fire in the sky and be able to kind of lead them in their direction and they'd have they'd have uh, cracks intentionally in their side structures in their walls and things so that the light would come through and they would use that as a word picture of how God used that light to establish them. This was considered the most significant or joyful celebration of the entire year. In fact, it was a, it was a requirement for the, the, the males in the Jewish household to co- go to three festivals and this being one of them. But it was hardly an arm twister because everybody looked forward to it. It's pretty much like going to the Skowhegan Fair. I'm sure it was just like that. Had a little tractor pulling going on over here and what would take place, though, is that uh, each and every morning the the priest would would uh, lead a procession from the temple down to the water gate, and he would lead it with this pitcher held high and, and 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 before them, and the people would sing psalms of celebration as he was walking down towards this water gate, and the crowds would follow. It was the it was the event to look forward to each and every morning, and as he got to the water gate, and he would he would dip that pitcher in the water and pull it out, they would quote. Isaiah twelve three and they would shout with joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. The Jewish people wasted no imagery to point to what the Lord was doing and what was going on at the time. And so water plays such a prominent word picture in the scriptures, in particular in the Old Testament of how the Lord's going to provide because everybody experiences this thirst. We all get parched, not just in our tongues, but in our souls. And so the Lord, uh, gives us this image of like gushing water, even, uh, as, as, as the water comes rushing in and we think how refreshing that is to feel that in our souls. This celebration, this feast of tabernacles or feast of booths is, is the backdrop of one of Jesus' most poignant and incredible offerings to a public and when we come to chapter 7 of John uh, of John what we're going to see is we're going to see it's a it's a it's a another long chapter and we're going to cover a lot of real estate in chapter 7 this morning but uh it, you can see chapter 7 playing out in three different sections and each of these sections are identified with how the people are responding to what Jesus is doing the, the, his presence alone, the words that he says, all of this, you can see three major categories in this chapter of the people's response. This morning, we're going to cover two of them, if I can get through it in a timely manner. And then the following week, Lord willing, will be in the third response. But these three divisions, based on the people's responses, are one, disbelief. Not really a shocker, right? We're seeing this already as we went through chapter 6 that the people were starting to walk away from Jesus. He had already shared some language that said, um, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. And as Pastor Tom just so aptly explained to us that that was the, that was the metaphor for his what was actually physically his broken body and his spilled blood for our sins. And he says, if you don't consume me, if you don't take all of me in through this imagery of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, then you can have no part with me. And so many of his disciples, the big crowd that had been following him, watching all the miracles, getting more and more interested that this could be the guy. This could be the real Messiah that we were waiting for. As they saw that he was starting to share this really tough language and he, he wanted 100% commitment, they said, I don't really know if I'm interested. They started dropping their bread and go, I don't think we can find this back in the grocery store at home, can't we? They started walking away from him. Disbelief was starting to grow even amongst his followers. And then there's debate that we're going to see as we move through this chapter. People uncertain as to who Jesus is and, and whether or not they're looking at the right guy, the wrong guy. I don't know. It keeps changing every time he opens his mouth or the authorities come in on this. We don't know how, what to, what sense to make of who Jesus really is. And then lastly, we'll see that growing division comes as a result of Jesus' presence and his teaching. So let's get right into it in verse 1 of John chapter 7. Scripture says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. After this, this little phrase, after what? Well, after the events I just explained in John chapter 6 and even previously in John chapter 5. But six months have passed from the close of John chapter 6 to the opening of John chapter 7. As we've explained before, we've got four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and this one, John. And the other three, called the synoptic gospels, refer to other events that John does not include here. Not because he didn't see them, doesn't believe in them. They don't make the point that John is attempting to make as the author of this letter. So he moves from uh, the events of John chapter 6, and then he goes, fast forward six months. And then he says, after this, this is what happens next. But during the six months, Jesus has been healing. He's been teaching. He's been casting out demons. He's had another miraculous feeding of thousands. All of this taking place before John says after this. But it's curious because Jesus' method of ministry, we heard a little bit about that from Eric Brown last week who did an excellent job and I appreciate him filling in for me while we were at the men's retreat. But Jesus has a method or a mode or a practice of ministry. And Jesus was, it was on full display even during these six months. He's moving away from the crowd. He could have capitalized on making his campaign even bigger and bigger, more and more popular. And instead he retreats and he tells his, his closest disciples, get closer. We're going to work on some things. Hi, Colette. Just seeing you there. <laughs> Every time I see somebody I haven't seen for a while, I'm like, I almost embarrassed you. This time, Colette, you deserve it. I'm embarrassing you. (laughs) Nice to see you. (laughs) He's been working, doing these things that the crowds are still kind of, oh, this is Jesus. This is cool. But then he says to the disciples, get closer. And and he only, in this six months, he only does a handful of things that the crowds are even aware of. Most of Jesus' ministry and the time he's taking is with his personal disciples, those closest followers to him. His real students of the life that he is portraying to them and the one he's teaching them about. He's beginning to reveal to them, hey, this isn't going to last forever. I have an impending rejection coming up. They're not going to like this. They will crucify the son of man. He's starting to let them understand that there's going to be a real cost to following him. But he says it won't be the end. I will be raised again, that there will be a resurrection of the dead and you will see it in me. And so Jesus is taking the time to do this kind of ministry, this, this intense discipleship, knowing that as the heat gets hotter... The way that this whole movement survives is not from the big crowds, because what do crowds do when the heat gets on? They scatter. This is actually something that's done in a more personal level through personal conviction that whether my circumstances are good or they're not, I know that he's faithful. I know that he's just and I'll follow him. This is what we try to attempt here as a church, even locally. John MacArthur says the measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but in the depth of its discipleship. Anybody would like the crowd to be big. Even John MacArthur himself preaches to a very large crowd every single week. And sometimes pastors who have somewhat smaller congregations stuff would use a statement like this to justify, well, that's why we don't have big crowds because we just care about discipleship and all this kind of stuff. The point is the crowd isn't an indicator either or the size of it isn't an indicator of you doing something right or doing something wrong. What we are measured by is the depth of our relationships with one another, our discipleship to one another. The crowd works itself out the size of the crowd. In fact, uh, next month, we'll be introducing, a, a, a kind, hopefully, kind of a unifying exercise, a tiny little book called Discipleship. And I would like for everyone to grab a copy. We're going to make as many as we can available out in the entryway. We're going to go through a process together, a short read of just understanding some of the deeper truths of what it means for you and I to minister together with each other and for each other. And to help this church start to get on the same page of what we're really talking about. Some of the things that we can't cover just on a Sunday morning. So be praying about that. Be looking forward to that. But it's in an attempt for us to to model ourselves after what Jesus did. He took the closest ones to us and said, let's go through this together. But nevertheless, disbelief comes from some of the most unexpected places. Let's continue in verse 2. Where John 7 says, now the Jews' feast of Booth was at at hand. So his brothers said to him, take note of this, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Duh, Jesus thought you'd know that. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Why would they say such a thing? Because verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus had a family. They were half brothers and half sisters because we know that Jesus didn't have an earthly dad. But he had James who would eventually write the letter of James. We had he had Joseph, who was another way of saying Joseph. He's Joseph Jr. named after his father, Simon, who's not Simon, Peter, but another Simon, Judas, who's not Judas, the, the betrayer, but who becomes Jude and writes that little tiny letter at the end of the New Testament, Jude. But at the time that they're saying this, this to, to Him, they're not, uh, they're not current writers of the New Testament. They're not all in. They're not bought in. Jesus just got done saying, if anyone's going to follow me, they need to consume me, take me all the way in. And the text is saying His brothers weren't all the way there. We could look at some of their advice to him, basically saying, hey, Jesus, go out and make yourself known. Don't this isn't the time to go climbing under a rocket out there and and push. You know, there's there's a crowd that wants to see you're still in the game. Don't disappoint them. We could look at this and because we saw in verse five, they weren't believers that maybe it's cynical. Hey, let's see what he has. What's the watch him fall on his face? We're sick of him, sick of him being such a good two. His His bed was always made every day. Let's see him go out and fall on his face. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that there's a natural tendency that when you and I have someone in our sphere of circle who are successful or things are going well, we wanna want to kind of hitch to their hitch our wagon to their train and, and pull and have him pull us along. And there could be a, a real genuine interest in Jesus being successful, not because they're they're bought into this whole he's the unique son of God, but because this is really working and we could be like his managers. We could be his hype men. We could make sure he's booked into the future, all this sort of stuff. Maybe it's good family business. Who knows? But I think there's some intention to see Jesus come out on top. So they advise him, don't don't go crawling under a rock. Get out in the public. What I'd like us to focus on a little bit more closely is, is a word of comfort from this little paragraph. Many of you are uh, seeing a change in your life. Many of you are, are, are having things go differently for you. You're reacting to the pressures and the situations of life differently because Jesus moved in and he started transforming you from the inside. Some of your behaviors on the outside are starting to adjust because of what God is doing on the inside of you. And you want to uh, supernaturally, you want to just share that with other people who, you know, don't have that same hope. And you you feel like you're making it clear. You feel like you're just set on fire and there's joy and there's you're just positive about it. And they're just kind of like, well, that's good for you. Isn't that always a great phrase? I'm glad you found it. That's Q for leave it over there. And you get frustrated and you're like, I thought I'm saying all the right things. I, I'm trying to serve them. I'm being helpful. I'm doing all the right things. And they're not believing in Jesus. Jesus himself wasn't being believed by his own family. This should encourage us. From what we know, yes, some did become believers and authors of of the scriptures. But it wasn't immediate. It wasn't because he had the right answers. No one's going to have better answers than Jesus. And yet those answers and that demonstration didn't convince them. It, it's on us to be faithful. It's on us to be patient. It's on us to, to give the results over to the Lord. Do in their heart, Lord, what you intend to do. Help me just to be a, a piece of the process. Help me to, to point them in the right direction. Let's continue in verse six. Jesus says to them, answering his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. It, it's always the right time for you guys. Verse seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I'm out there poking them in the eye all the time. I have to watch the timing of this much more carefully than you guys do. You're not out there creating waves. Verse eight, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time is not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, when I read this, I, I struggle at first and I go, wait a second, why is Jesus saying, cause I know, spoiler alert, he goes up to the feast. So why is Jesus saying, I'm not going? Um, without getting into the weeds of all of this and certainly trying to get into things that even I don't fully comprehend. the the key for us here, the clue for us is that Jesus is using a word and an idea for time that isn't just a, a, a measurable scientific time period like six o'clock. He's referring to it as an opportunity. My opportunity has not yet come. And so the language here would be better stated, I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Why that's not a little clearer for us in some of the English translations, I don't know. But there's a difference here. He's not just talking about chronological time. He's talking about opportune time. But I like how Jesus is resisting the pressure. He's got all these brothers and no doubt he loves them and likes being liked by them. They're his brothers. He's growing up around them. And they're saying, this is what we think we should do. And doesn't somebody always have an opinion about how you should handle a situation? Those of you that still subject yourself to all the Facebook opinions, I don't know how you do it. Everyone's telling you how you should do things better. That's why I hide from Facebook. I got enough people telling me how I should do things better. I don't need a bigger audience. How does Jesus withstand this pressure? Psalms 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Remember, his brothers were not yet believers, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, hear this now, his delight is in the law of the Lord or in the words of the Lord or in the truth of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He saturates himself with the truth and the law of God so that what? Verse 3, so that he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. How is Jesus able to just remain resolutely against the pressure of everyone's opinion all the time? He's planted. He's planted in the truth and the words of his father. It is always wisest for us to obey God's timing and leading in our lives than to simply react to the pressure of other people. I know I can leave that open-ended and a lot of us will feel justified at making it sound like I'm saying something a little bit more worldly of like you answer to you. Don't let anybody tell you what you need to do, but that's not really what I'm saying here at all. Jesus was planted in the word of God. He is the word of God. Are you planted in the word of God? Do people's opinions push you around and make you toss and turn over the ways which the scriptures warn us against that we will be a double minded person, unstable in all of our ways? When's the last time that you dug your roots deep into the truth and the refreshment of the water source of his word? It's not because every page tells you exactly what to do. Take this job, date this person, do the next thing or something. But as we're plugged into the principles of God's word and we start to see how his truth is playing out over the grand scheme of life, we start to relax a little bit more. And we say he's in control. My job for today is serving him. My job today is waking up and saying, Lord, how do I point people to see you and your goodness in my life? And a lot of those things get answered. It's always wisest to obey God's timing rather than to react to the pressure of others. Our next section of this chapter, as we're doing kind of a flyover here, is where we see debate starting to grow in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now keep in mind, Jesus is anticipated. We've been saying it all along, perhaps more than we would have realized, but Jesus is, is famous. It's it's not that he's some upstart that nobody's put any credibility in. There's a curiosity there. Could this be the one? And so he, he's got a built-in audience wherever he goes. So he waits, and he makes a different kind of entry, sort of slips in through the back door. And in the middle of the week, this is a set, an eight-day-long festival. In the middle of the week, he went up into the temple and began teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning... When he's never studied or he's never gone to our, in their equivalent, he's never gone to our seminaries. He's never been to any of our rabbinical schools. And yet he's brilliant and he's got an educational flow about his teaching. So Jesus answers them in the most unfalse Messiah-like way. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Now they've seen false messiahs. We'll just make this point quick. They've seen people that were saying, I'm the one, follow me. I'll dismantle the enemy and I'll establish us as a nation. And so what were they doing the whole time? Look at me, look at me. Jesus comes on the scene and says, don't look at me, look at my father. I'm doing everything he sent me to do the humility in this as the son of God, the rightful heir of all of their worship. And he still says, I am doing my father's will. And if anybody's got the same will to do what he wants, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. You see, our belief needs to precede our knowledge. So many people want God to give them all the answers before they believe. And he says, no, actually, it's the other way around. You believe in me and I'll reveal more and more. Well, that takes a great deal of faith. Exactly. Humble belief and a desire to do God's will is the path to knowing him more is what Jesus is saying to us. Now, again, for time's sake, we can't look at all of the verses going on. Jesus challenges them coming up next on, on their inconsistency. Remember when he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath? And they're all freaking out. You can't lift a finger on the Sabbath. This is our day of rest, which means don't blink. And you went and healed him. And Jesus is calling him out later. He says, oh, by the way, that whole Sabbath healing thing that you freaked out about, you guys have this own your own tradition that, that was established about circumcision on the eighth day. No matter when your baby was born, you're not missing the eighth-day circumcision, even if it happens on the Sabbath. And the Jews saw that as sort of a perfecting ritual, improving the body. And he says, here I am healing the whole body. And you say, you can't do that. That's against God's will, God's plan. Jesus is saying, so let's be honest here. You're not upset with the fact that I performed a miracle on the Sabbath. You're upset that I'm threatening your religious authority. And I'm dismantling your whole method of, of of keeping people under your control. When in fact, God wants to uh, get to know them individually and wants to be their God personally. So let's jump down to verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. This is where the debate starts to continue. And they say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're not moving in on him. They're not arresting him. Maybe they know he's the real deal. But but we're scratching our heads here. In verse 27, it's conflicting with our information. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one's going to know where he comes from. Where did they get that? Well, it comes from poor interpretation of scripture, which had then become legend that the Messiah would just show up in the temple one day and nobody would Everybody would be like, where did this guy come from? We don't know who he is, where he's from, but he can do all these things. He's wise and everything. And this must be the one. And they go, we know Jesus. We know who his brothers are. We know who his parents are. We know he's in from Nazareth. We're expecting him from Bethlehem. But he's from Nazareth. They're forgetting and missing the piece that he was born in Bethlehem. So they're misunderstanding some scripture and some prophecy. And they're saying, this doesn't make sense because we think this is Messiah. But... We're not supposed to know where he's from, and I can tell you his address right now. So it's confusing them. There's debate amongst them. Let's continue, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. This, read this sarcastically a little bit, like a so you think. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him for I can I come from him and he sent me. So they're seeking to, so they were seeking to arrest him and no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And yet many of the people believed in him. They said, so when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this guy has done? In other words, why would we be looking for another Messiah? This guy checks off all the boxes. We're not expecting someone to come. That's any better than him, are we? Later on in the chapter, as we get through this, we'll see that the reason why the authorities weren't laying their hands on him is they were pretty mesmerized by his teaching too. Even though his time had not yet come, they were kind of stopped and they couldn't quite explain why, but they were like, we just can't do this yet because we're confused. The debate was, uh, was raging, not just publicly, but internally. So let's get to sort of the thrust of this passage and let's conclude our time in this here a little bit. Jesus has been uh, uh, watching the Lord's timing, waiting for his father to say, now's the time to move. Now's the time to show up. If he shows up on day one, there were people anticipating his presence. There would have either been a crowd that, again, would have made him more than he wanted to be, or at least in a different light than he wanted to be. Here he comes. He's finally here. Look, this is the man. Look, we got T-shirts. We got bumper stickers. We get all that sort of stuff. So he said, I don't want any of that fanfare because that's not the mission I'm on. There would have been others who were expecting him to walk through the main gate and say, let's put the shackles on him and let's arrest him because we're going to deal with this before the crowd even knows he's here. So he's watching the Lord's time. He's watching this father's timing and he acts obediently and walks right into the middle of this and people are around him debating as to whether or not he's the real deal. Authorities finally press in and they don't know what to do with him either. Now, again, a a great and fun festival is happening while all this is going on. there's, There's a crowd over there in some area and people are like, well, this is really great. The priest is getting ready to do the thing, but there's something going on over there. And I'm hearing rumors that Jesus of Nazareth has arrived and just a lot of event going on. And as I said, every morning the priest would take that picture and they would watch him walk up and down, and they would they would support him through psalms and songs and 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 scripture quoting and just excitement and jubilation. And when he would get to the temple, he would uh, each day for seven days he would go. The priest would go around the altar and then and then pour it out on the altar as an offering of water, pouring it out before the Lord. And on the eighth day, what he would do is on his way back, he would, again, all the same scripture chants, everything. He'd get to that altar, and he'd go around it seven times, symbolizing what? The march of Joshua and the army around the walls of Jericho before it fell as they shouted and sang their praise. And the whole enemy encampment just comes down, and they're able to enter in. This is all taking place. And so on the eighth day, as people are watching this, it's like the height of the experience to be able to see the priest holding that up and they're supporting it and they keep saying higher, 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 and they're lifting it up and he's he's stretching his arm out as much as his go-go gadget arms will allow him. And the crowd is just enthralled with, this is it, kids. This is what we came for, probably on their shoulders and everything. Watch what the priest does. And in that moment... In the height of all of the anticipation of this, we finally, we've waited all year. On the last day in verse 7, Jesus stood up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Talk about capitalizing on a moment talking about interrupting what everyone came to see. And we've got some guy in a crowd making it all about him and shouting it out. So everyone's like, Come, we were just about to see the priest do this thing and you had to interrupt it. He says, if anyone thirsts, he's talking to a bunch of Middle Easterners. Do you think they know what thirsting is? They've had some hot desert days. They felt that thirst and, and this guy's about to pour off that symbol that has provided for them for the centuries. And he stops him. he says, before we get to that, I just want to let you know that I'm available so that you don't have to keep relying on this height of your religious experience or this thing that you're anticipating, the thing you can't wait to pass down to the kids and this tradition and all that sort of stuff. This will not satisfy As as our men found out this week, we went to this incredible retreat and it was hard to come down off the metaphorical mountain for a few days. You just had this feeling about you like, man, it's nothing compares to what we just saw what we just enjoyed together. And so there's a mundaneness that happens on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Eventually you start acclimating back to real life. And then you're looking back, you're looking forward to the next one. This is what we do with the human experience. And Jesus stops the human experience and says, before you get duped again by this height of emotion, if you want your thirst really satisfied, come to me. God, through the prophet Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. The first is they've forsaken me, me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, these broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the second great tragedy, the second great evil they've committed is we keep making these vessels to contain water, but they leak all over the place. They don't hold what we want to satisfy us. And they they just run all over the place. And we have to keep filling it with something else just to keep them so that we go, oh, yeah, it's nice and full. Lying to ourselves that it's not leaking out of the bottom of it. You know, a kind of a, a simple uh, level, you know, you're hungry and you finally get to go out to the restaurant and you're you're hangry. And everything's taken forever, you know, even down to like when someone else is ordering and you're like, could you please hurry up? I need that steak. Or when they finally arrives and you're like, okay, who's going to pray? You're looking around the table. See, who's the shortest prayer here? <laughs> Let's get this going here. I'm going to get some steak in my gullet. Or we finally get that new job and we're thinking, okay, I'm going to finally get my, my accolades or my recognition or I've been promoted. or I'm going to get that money that's going to take care of all my stuff. And, and we do have this very human sense of that's when life will get good. I'm about to get the keys to a new vehicle, and I'm just thinking, finally, reliability, a little bit of prestige, someone's going to notice me, all these kinds of things. I'm I'm finally meeting who who might be the love of my life, and we've been fixed up on this first date. Or I'm sitting in a a dark theater, and the movie that I've been waiting to come out for so long is finally about to play. And all you hear is that annoying crunch of people's popcorn and still digging through. It's like, can we just wait? Just wait until there's some sound. What is it with us? We always have crunch, crunch, crunch. And we're just waiting for it to come out. Sorry, a little too close to home. I've been through this. My family has to deal with it all the time. We go and get them ready for it. Maybe I'm standing at the altar and I'm about to say I do to the person who's supposed to complete me. And they're going to set me up to just be fulfilled in life. Or maybe I'm being rushed into the delivery room and it's about to happen. All of my biggest dreams of finally having this child is coming through. It's in those moments where we are so enraptured with how our life is about to finally be fulfilled. Jesus stands up and says, hey, can I just get your attention? If anybody thirsts, let them come after me and they will find living water for their souls. Yeah, okay. But can we talk about this over dinner? The steak just arrived or you know I'll I'll pray before I start my new job I'll thank you for the provisions you've given me and stuff but I'll get to that later or I'll I'll ask the Lord to bless this new vehicle and use it for his service and all these things that we do or or yes I you know I'll I'll make sure as I'm coming to this date I'll I'll pray before dinner we'll invite you into the relationship or Or what do you mean, Jesus? Why are you stopping the marriage? We just quoted scripture from you. We just had a pastor here to do. I mean, obviously, this is a Christ-centered marriage that we're building here. Why would you stop us and do this? You know, we've got pressing things. The labor pains are pretty strong right now and things are about to happen. Why would you stop the process and say, just bring this to me and be satisfied in me? We have such a a human experience in our lives. We have such an expectation that the next thing coming is finally what's going to fill up our tank. And it continues to let us down. Why? Because it was meant to. It wasn't supposed to be the fulfillment. It isn't saying that, that because we follow Jesus, you're never going to have a new car. Or it doesn't mean because you follow Jesus, you're never going to have a fulfilling marriage. Or that you're gonna, your kids are going to rise up and call you blessed in the things that we hear. God may still bless you with those things. But even with that, it will let you down. And you'll say, it still doesn't fully satisfy. What am I missing? You see, because Jesus isn't just an add-on to our equation. He is our Everything so much so that he will stop the procession and he'll say, look at me, come to me. You are thirsty, just admit it. You've been attempting all of these efforts in order to quench that thirst and nothing seems to work. You must come to me and consume me all the way. That's why the drinking metaphor is so helpful to us because it gets to our inside. And what happens when it gets inside of us, we see in verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his center, out of his core will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit, one of the members of the triune Godhead, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is he saying? That you and I as true believers have the spirit of God living within us. And what he does is he moves into the middle of us. I mentioned earlier, some of you are seeing changes in your life and you're reacting to situations differently. And you're thinking, who is this that I'm seeing in the mirror? Why, why am I uh, acting differently? Why don't I feel the same way as I would have felt even last week? It's because Jesus moves in the middle and churns up the whole thing and he starts plowing up that ground and he plants the seed of his spirit within and it starts to bring new life. And as Jesus is saying, and these living waters are just gushing out in multiple streams, in multiple rivers. And we start to realize I exist for the benefit of others. Why would I have multiple streams if it wasn't meant to be kind of shooting out to multiple people? And it's coming out in power and overflowing joy. So the question for us is, are you a source for life giving water for those around you? Or have you become or remain a stagnant pool? The Holy Spirit comes into our life and says, dig a trench over there. We've got to get some inlet water into this stagnant algae, mosquito infested pond. And we're going to carve out an outlet and all that stuff's going to start washing out. And I'm going to start moving in. Not all at once. I'm going to start cleaning that out and having a flow of life and health into your system, into your reservoir here. And you're going to see change after change after change. And this is going to be a life giving source. Not just for you, but for those you encounter. This is why you and I need to stop talking about neckties while people are dying of thirst. What we have to offer them is right in the canteen, and it is the person of Jesus. Not more church, not more religion, not more activity or duty or any of those things. As the good Jews were finding out that that was leaving them thirsty still. Instead, we we take more of Jesus, we find him in his word, we find him living out in the lives of other people, and we say, I need to be around this more. I need them to help shape my life under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we find that that living water is coming flooding into our lives. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of negativity in society right now, right? Everyone's an idiot. The person that The person, and I'm just saying this is how we view everybody that's not on your side of thinking, right? What a bunch of idiots. It's all we hear. Where's the life-giving, spirit-filling language that comes from God's people, especially in some of the most harshest of times? You and I, you've heard the expression uh, You know, uh, it just takes a little bit of light in a very dark room. You can see it from all over the place. You and I have the most opportune time right now for our language to come out of us like a like a flowing living river into a, a, a cesspool of negativity. Everyone's living in fear. Everyone's living on their high horse because that person's an idiot and they don't understand the science like I do and all this kind of stuff. And we're just looking down all of our, our, uh, if if I dare say, our talk radio environments and all these things. I just turn it on for two seconds because I want to be educated on something. I'm like, oh, everyone's just looking down their nose at everybody. Bunch of idiots. And this is on every side of the debate. God's people need to find some tension in that. We need to speak life and flow a, a living river into these situations. Bring the gospel of peace to the presence of people's lives. Not because they'll instantly believe it, remember Jesus, brothers. But so that they'll see this person's anchored in in, in tethered. Their roots are running deep, feeding off of the life-giving uh, source of truth. And they're not being persuaded by the panic and the freak out that's going on around them. Are you satisfied? Did I list off some of the things that you look forward to or the things that you're counting on as your next stop in life to bring you that fulfillment? Are you starting to hear that maybe that's not going to come through for you like you want it to? And that's okay. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to point you to the fact that all of these things, short of Jesus, will leave us empty. We can enjoy what the Lord brings into our life. We can thank him for the abundant blessings that we have. But putting them in their proper place, it was never meant to replace you, Lord. So help me never to do that. Would you stand? Let's close our time in prayer and in worship. God, I want to thank you, Father, for the life-giving water that you quench our thirst with. And some of these things for me, Lord, are not concrete enough to explain to your people. And so I pray that your spirit will continue to make clear to them what their next step is with this. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to show your grace as we continue to trade you in for the passing pleasures of this earth. And Lord, I know that even as I preach this and study this, you're just reminding me, Father, of how close you are to me. You're there for my asking. You're there for my drinking. So help me, Lord, to rely on you as my source of life. Be faithful to these faithful people, Lord. Continue to move in their lives and use them, God, in their areas, and their circle of influence, Lord. Help them to sp- uh, spring forth like, like a fresh spring to the people around them. May they see the hope and the truth of Jesus Christ living out in their lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.